Hello, everyone. I'm Heather Ward, the SCA's Director of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Podcast. Today's episode is part of our Expo Lecture Series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at our Specialty Coffee Expo. Check out the show notes for relevant links and a full transcript of today's lecture. This episode of Expo 2019 Lectures Podcast is supported by Soft Engine Coffee One, powered by SAP. Built upon SAP's business-leading enterprise resource planning solution, SoftEngine Coffee One is designed to quickly and easily take your small-to-medium coffee company, working at any point along the coffee chain, to the next level of success. Learn more about SoftEngine Coffee One at softengine.com, with special pricing available for SCA members. SoftEngine, the most intelligent way to grow your business. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the 2019 Specialty Coffee Expo in Boston. Don't miss next year's lecture series in Portland. Find us on social media or sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up to date with all of our announcements, including ways to get involved in next year's expo and early bird ticket release. Coffee shows an appealing bitterness when properly roasted and prepared. But how do the compounds that make coffee taste bitter develop during roasting and how do you analyze and identify them? What lessons can be learned from academic research on coffee roasting to make coffee even more pleasantly bitter tasting. And after a century of intensive research, why is it that we still do not know exactly what makes coffee bitter at all? Dr. Sarah Markhart is the curator of the Cosmos Coffee Exhibition at the Deutsche Museum. In this lecture, she shares excerpts of her academic research into bitterness during her PhD at TU Munich in food chemistry focused on highly sophisticated elucidation of reaction pathways and kinetics, leading to bitter to stance in roasted coffee. Also, I will jump in occasionally to help you follow along. All right, let's get started. I think if the title of this lecture would be like the acidic taste of coffee or the fruity taste, there would be way more people because nowadays bitter coffee is not so fancy anymore. So um, I did a PhD about the elucidation of bitter tasting coffee. Why is coffee tasting bitter? What happens during the roasting? And this uh, this topic seems like from the last decade, because bitterness is not a thing anymore nowadays, specialty coffee and um, coffee research. But as I did this research for Nespresso, um, it's something different. So there's bitterness is still a thing there. Um, so yeah, I'm a postdoctorate um, MS, like Master of Science food chemist. And as I already told you, I did my... Um, PhD about the taste of coffee, the bitter taste of coffee, and what happens during the roasting. Right now, I'm a culture girl, so I'm making an exhibition about coffee, so it's com- something completely different, but still, I'm having like um, some science background. So what am I going to talk today about? It's about aroma and taste. What is the difference? What is taste? What is aroma? I will give a short introduction about roasting chemistry and like acidity versus bitterness, um, some analytics for all the geeks in here, uh, for all the guys who want to have some methodology. Um, then I will go like dig into the formation of major bitter um, compounds, the sensory ev- evaluation of those, and give a short overview. As I'm a chemist and I'm not a roaster, please don't ask me for recipes afterwards, like how you can make the perfect coffee. I try to give like good answers, but yeah, I'm a chemist, I'm not a roaster. So we're starting off... Um, Oh, everyone is always citing like there's a thousand flavors in coffee. And when I first entered the scene, I was like, wow, a thousand flavors. This must be such a highly diverse 
um, um, product, but actually, sorry, I need to be a mythbuster here because actually it is not um, a thousand um, flavors, it's a thousand volatiles, a thousand semi-volatiles, so they are not actually for flavor active. Sarah has a very complex chart up on the screen. It looks like it came from a space satellite. And we did some research. Um, you don't have to mind about this diagram. It looks like quite messy. What it is, it is, it is a meta-analysis of pretty much uh, every publication made in um, the previous like 40, 50 years on flavor of coffee. And we did like a heat map and we did a cluster analysis. And it, what it turned out it is that coffee flavor can be described with 23 flavor compounds. So there's not much magic behind. So from, from my perspective, from a chemist's perspective, flavor of coffee is pretty boring. So, yeah, sorry, but. <laughs> and so what I like more, or what's more interesting for me is like the taste, the acidity, the bitterness, and is bitter always bad? So um, in specialty coffee, bitterness is like a dreaded word nowadays. Um, it's all about acidity, blueberry, this kind of things. And everyone's saying like, your life is bitter, your coffee shouldn't. And I think most of us agree, like, if, if our coffee wouldn't be bitter, we wouldn't like it that much. There's a difference in bitterness. It's not this, like, there's not a single bitterness. There's a variety of bitterness. And so for me, when it comes to taste, bitterness is like a symphony. You have the acidity, you have the sourness, you have the bitter taste. And this all comes together to this beautiful, beautiful, highly diverse, complex beverage, which we enjoy on an everyday basis. For the definitions, what is aroma, what is taste? So aroma, we perceive it in the nose. Taste, we perceive in the mouth. And when it comes to aroma, we have like two different ways to perceive it. We have um, ortonasal olfaction, which is like through the nose. When we drink the coffee, we can already smell it through our nose. And we have retronasal olfaction. When we have it in the mouth, it's getting to our nose, and there we smell it. But we call it commonly tasting like when when we're saying actually it's tasting like blueberries we're smelling blueberries because it's the blueberry flavor in our mouth which is getting to our nose and it makes us feel like we're we're tasting blueberry but it's actually smelling what we do taste is just five basic tastings it's salty sour acidity bitterness sweetness and umami i think most of you are nowadays are already familiar with umami like this is the savory MSG, broth, meaty tasting thing, which is like, oh, yummy, when you eat like, like chips or something like that, and you can't just stop. The science behind this, like, uh, we have a craving in our brain telling us when we eat umami, MS, MSG, we are getting protein and carbohydrate. So if we are having like this umami reaction, it's like, oh, yeah, get us, like, give me more from this protein and carbohydrate, because if there's a, like, um, starvation phase, we will have enough energy for those days to... Um, uh, um, dig into. And small little teaser from my research when I um, quitted my chair, there's also like we're in, in, into discussion nowadays if there's a sixth sense, like sixth taste sense, and um, it's called kokumi, and another Japanese name, and it is all about mouthfulness, long-lastingness, like how long this taste stays in our mouth. For example, if you have a good red wine, and you pour it down, and you have this like two minutes aftertaste of like, yeah, and the same for coffee. Coffee also having some kukumi taste to it. Coming back to this crazy thing. So it turned out that you can describe pretty much every food in this world, the aroma, by 220 flavor compounds. As I said, flavors could be pretty boring. 220 sounds much, but it is not. So if you have those 220, you can pretty much do everything. 
where it comes to taste, it just seems simple. You have five taste buds, five taste receptors, but you have millions of compounds who can activate those. And that's, I think, the other way around, whereas olfaction is like you have a lot of olfaction receptors and just 220 compounds activating them. Coming to bitter. So bitter is not just bitter taste. There's a lot of bitter taste qualities. We have harsh bitter tasting. This is this, I don't know if I should name it like Starbucks dark roast coffee. This is like super harsh. <laughs> hope, I really hope there's no Starbucks uh, person in here. I love Starbucks coffee. Sometimes I need that. Actually, on yesterday after um, Coffee Expo, um, I had so much like city coffee that I went to this, uh, some deli around the corner of my Airbnb and bought a, a box of Folgers Dark Roast Classic. And I made a French press like super strong and like let it infuse for five minutes and it was so yummy and bitter. It's like, like sometimes I need that harsh bitter taste. Anyway, so there's this rounded bitterness, which is pleasant. We have a metallic, coinly like coin taste like bitterness. We have a sharp one, which is already like a little bit painful, a velvet light like bitterness and astringent dry bitterness. So coming to the chemistry, coming to my part now, when you do coffee roasting, you start with the green bean. And 60% of the green bean is made up with carbohydrates. There's like a little lipids, a little bit of protein, but what's happening during the roasting is those compounds are all converted into something else. As you can see, the shares are shifting. So the most obvious changes is like carbohydrates and proteins are decreased. And um, I think most of you already heard like this is Maillard reaction behind proteins and carbohydrates mixing together. So there's a breakdown of those two making new compounds, making the coffee brown, caramelizing it, making it flavorful, making it yummy. Same for the taste during the roasting. Acidity first goes up a little bit and then drops. So in later stages of the roasting, the acidity drops sharply, whereas the bitterness increases dramatically. So I think everyone knows that. If you like ever roast coffee before, so that's not something fancy, something new. Now there's my research. So um, I used two principles. I used mass spectrometry and I used nuclear magnetic resonance spectroct, spectroct, or whatever, <laughs> terminative speaker, so sorry. Um, and I did qualification, uh, which is checking what is in the coffee and quantification to check how much is in the, in, in the coffee. And um, so we have this tool here called LM NMR. It's a huge magnet. It weighs 15 tons. And we use like two, three, five milligrams of compound in this small tube, put it in, put on the magnet, and then we got a fancy looking spectra, which looks like that. Sarah is showing a photo of what looks like a four meter high canister underneath a giant fan. This is the nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy machine. Next to this photo is a chart of the results. The chart is a spiky square containing blurry splotches of black. And from that, we can um, draw out information um, how the compound looks like. And by that, like how, if we know how a compound looks like, we can draw conclusions how this compound might taste like and how this compound might um, be formed during the roasting, like which reaction lies behind. If you start an analysis, you first, or I did, um, I did untargeted analysis, so I first gathered information. Just, I got everything, what I, what I want, like dig, 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 and so I had a huge pool of data. Then I did statistical analysis, evaluation, 
And then I draw like decisions or I draw conclusions. What does this mean for me and for my analysis? When it comes to roasting, it's a mystery. Like when I started my PhD, my, my professor told me like, hey, Sarah, do you really want to open this uh, Pandora's box? Like if you open it, you might not be like satisfied with your research. And actually I'm not because bitterness is like really still a mystery after four years of research. I can't tell you exactly like what is making coffee all bitter. I can just give you a small, small part of it. So how did I start? I took chlororganic acid. I don't know if you're familiar with chlororganic acid. It's a, it's a polyphenol. It's in green coffee. It's making up to 12% in, in green coffee. Itself, it's tasting sour. But when you roast it, it's turning into something bitter called chlororganic acid lactone. So something sour turning into something bitter during the roasting. And it is a temperature and time-dependent reaction. How do we know that? And now I'm coming to the, to the geeky part, if it's not already too geeky enough. So we took green beans, we extracted this compound, chlororganic acid, so we draw it all out, all 12%, so the beans were empty, so there was no chlororganic acid anymore. Then I synthesized a modified chlororganic acid, which was isotope modified, so it is the same chemical and physical properties, different isotopic mass, so it's slightly weighing different. And you can detect it with the uh, methods I showed previously um, later on. So now we have like the original chlororganic acid, we have the modified one. We make a 50-50 ratio, and I stuff it back into the bean. Like, so then it's like 12% CQA back in the bean, but 50% labeled, 50% originally. And then I roast the bean, and there's the magic happening. What's happening is the chlor chlororganic acid degrades. There's uh, breakdown molecules. There's rearrangement molecules. And this 50-50% ratio, I can always track down. Like every mole molecule being generated is also showing this 50-50 ratio. So um, that's the beauty about it, like... Um, with that technique, you can find out novel compounds. You can trace reaction pathways you, because you always find your label. You, you always find your 50-50 no matter where you are in the reaction process, no matter where you are in the roasting process. You always have like different stages of your chlororganic acid or your breakdown or your novel compounds. Anyways, I told previously that you have this big data and you have to do statistical um, evaluation analysis so you have to bring all those data points into our order so you, you can draw out a conclusion. And this is just an example. So this is called S-plot because it looks like an S. Sarah has a graph up on the screen. It has an X and Y axis going through the middle. So it's equal parts positive numbers and negative numbers. There are many data points scattered into what looks like an S, beginning in the lower left quadrant and moving up into the upper right quadrant. The beginning and end of the S shape is very thin, with only a few dots, whereas the middle of the S shape is thick with dots. And um, what you can see here is like the dots occurring on the outer part, there or there, are the same compounds. And if it's symmetrical, you will know like, um, hmm, you will know that this occurred from your precursor, like the modified thing you put into the bean. Like, all these compounds here, I don't know, like 20 dots. And here, 20 dots are all, like, coming from my modified chlororganic acid. So it's a breakdown 
product. And yeah, what I could find out is like this harsh bitter tasting phenyl in Danes are formed from chlororganic acid on various stages of the roasting, in later stages of the roasting, and, and it's actually adding up, so it's getting more and more bitter. But it's just more for like clarification, so those graphics, they don't do any better for you. I just thought there might be like some chemists in here who are like, oh yeah. Sarah has a picture of eight chemical flasks. The colors of the liquids inside the flasks range from clear to deep red to yellow and to brown. So um, this is how my daily um, life looked like. So quite colorful, but actually it was like just um, fractionation work. So I roasted the coffee. I fractionated the coffee, like cutting it in samples, cutting it in smaller samples, and smaller and smaller and smaller. So what happened is like I um, had three bachelor students, two master students, and they were um, fractionating coffee for me for almost like three years. And in the end, I had five milligram of compound, which I was analyzing, and I found something new, or we found something new. It's called Mozambioseed. This compound itself is not tasting bitter, but it is a bitter-tasting enhancer, and it can be only found in Arabica coffee, so it's a marker for Arabica coffee. This is for benefit, for example, for coffee industry or adulteration analysis, like if you want to track, like if it's, for, for example, instant coffee, it's often said that, yeah, they're using Robusta coffee. And with that marker compound, you could track down if the company cheated on you or not. And back to the bitter and, and, and hasting part. So this compound itself is in the coffee on a margin level, like very, very small amount. But it's enhancing the other bitter compounds in the, in, in the coffee. In the end of my four years, I pretty much came to this reaction scheme and some more compounds, which I am not allowed to show due to like European researchers funded by companies. Um, so we have the chlororganic acid. We, during the roasting, we are forming the bitter lactone. And in later stages of the roasting, we are forming via various pathways, harsh bitter tasting compounds, the phenyl and Danes. And we don't want them, actually. This is the, this Starbucks tasty thing we don't usually want. Sometimes we want it. And the underlying reaction principle is a radical mechanism. Why is this so interesting? Radical mechanism means that this reaction will never stop to occur. So if you roast your coffee, and if you like cool it down, if you store it, if you brew it, if you have it in your can, this reaction will go on and on and on. So that's why your coffee is getting bitter and more bitter and more bitter the longer you have it on your heating plate, the longer you have it anywhere. So it's getting bitter, more bitter and more bitter due to this reaction be behind forming of those phenylindanes. So the best is you try to not have as much in your roast. So later on, it might not form as fast, but you cannot prevent it. Anyways, theory to practice, because this is, was already quite boring. What does it mean for our roasting, high temperature versus low temperature? Um, you, like what I always say, you have like two axes. You have temperature, you have time. If you make the, the one short, you have to make the other longer. And um, both ways lead to Rome, but, but not like the same entrance of Rome. So it like, looks different. Um, in the end... I would prefer a long roast with a low temperature to prevent for forming those phenyl indanes because then later in life when I'm unpacking this coffee or my consumer unpacks it, 
it might not be as bitter, not as harsh bitter. So roasting time and bitterness, there we have caffeine. As you can see, not much happens. Caffeine will not be degraded during the roasting, but caffeine also does not make our coffee bitter. Anyone of you ever drank decaffeinated coffee? I don't think so because we're all, all coffee chunkies. But someone was nodding over there. I saw you. I saw you. Yeah, so was it bitter? So, yeah, caffeine is not making our coffee bitter because, like, until 1950 or so, people thought, like, it's, yeah, the caffeine making coffee bitter, but it's not. Only 10% of the bitterness comes from caffeine. So, chlororganic acid is degraded sharply, but it's sour, as I told. The chlororganic acid, like, tones are formed, but later in the roast, degraded. This is the bitterness we want. This is the pleasant bitterness we want. So... We want to be somewhere around here. It, de it depends on how much bitter we want our coffee. Sarah has some graphs that show how many chlorogenic acid lactones form the longer our coffee is roasted. Chlorogenic acid lactones are a more pleasant type of bitterness that are smooth and velvety. Her graphs suggest the chlorogenic acid lactones in her trials peak at three minutes of roast time and drop significantly by the fifth minute of roast. And then the phenyl and Danes we want not. So the optimum roast degree and concentration is around here. So we, we can have like slightly bitter, like a strong bitterness, but pleasant, or then decreasing, but we don't, know, we don't want to be here where it's like harshly bitter and not very balanced. Sarah has a new graph showing how phenylindanes increase dramatically after the third minute of roast and plateau at a high level by the seventh minute. Phenylindanes give coffee an unpleasant, harsh, metallic bitterness. In the end, we have this scheme. So around 60 to 70% of the bitterness comes from the chlororganic acid lactones, 10% from the caffeine, 10 to 15 from the phenylindanes. It depends on the roast, actually, but I was just picking out a medium roast. And there's the unknown part. And that's what makes me upset after four years of research. There's an unknown box. And yeah, so please don't ask me. I will, I, will, I will not give you any, any answer and minor compounds, which I will show you in the, the outcome. But you don't do just like structural identification. You do not only do like um, reaction pathways. You also have to do sensory analysis. These pictures are from our sens sensory booths in Munich. So what we did, we did a sensory analysis all of all the identified compounds. We um, checked the taste qualities, like which kind of bitterness is it, or is it even bitter? Then we spike those compounds to actual coffee beverages to see if it's like adding up. Like for example, the bitter enhancing thing, you have to add it back to your coffee to see if it's actually enhancing the bitterness or not. Then you determine the taste threshold, like how much has to be in the coffee beverage so we can taste it. And then you correlate it with your previously quantitated concentration. So the thing is, just because a compound is for example, tasting bitter if you eat like one kg of it, but there's only 100 milligrams in, in your coffee, so it's not relevant for your everyday life, and that's like with most things. So if you find something, you're thinking, Eureka, I found something, and then, oh, damn, it, it doesn't play any role in my coffee. So. so in the end, as I said, like there's a saying, life is bitter, coffee shouldn't be. Shouldn't it, shouldn't it be bitter, or is it not about all like the balance? Isn't, isn't it about acidity, balancing out the bitterness, balancing out the sweetness? Isn't it that we want this yummy tasting coffee, which is like so perfectly 
like without sharpness and anything. I don't I, like. I'm more more speaking for this everyday coffee, like this daily coffee. I'm not for this like glass of red wine in the evening specialty coffee, which is like so berry like. That is fine for me, I, but for my everyday life, and I stand up in the morning 6 a.m., I want to have my filtered coffee, three cups, and I want to have it balanced, perfectly bitter. So it's all a matter of balance, and it's all a, when it comes to roasting and bitterness, it's all about temperature and time and balancing this one out. So thanks for your attention. It was quite short, just 20 minutes, but maybe you have some questions. An audience member is asking whether Sarah's research can also be transferred to Robusta beans. Yeah, it can. You just have like slightly different, con different concentration when it comes to chlororganic acids. They are lower in Robusta beans, but you have, like, for example, double the concentration of caffeine also Im impacting the bitter taste as well. Like, as I said, caffeine is making up 10% of the bitterness if you have double the concentration of caffeine. So you have not double the bitterness of the caffeine, but so more bitterness from caffeine in Robusta, but less for, from the chlororganic acids. Yep. Have you um, uh, pushed your research more into the consumer side where you maybe identified popular brands that do actually have this sort of sweet spot of, you know, a bitterness without being too harsh and so forth? No, actually, this was basic research performed for Nestle and they wanted to know um, what they can do to make a pleasant, rounded bitterness during the roasting, how they can optimize the roasting. It's more for, like, I think you call it commodity coffee, although, like, the commodity terms from without, within the specialty coffee scene, so it's always hard to tell. I think, it, like, for commercial coffee, I would name it. When it, when it comes to bitterness, there's a genetic pre prevalence for it, like 50% are, like, bitter-sensitive, 50% are not. And those who are bitter sensitive, they will always more tend to drink coffee more with sugar and milk. And we can't reach out to them anyways. If it's like harsh bitter tasting or around bitter tasting, they will always drink it with milk and sugar because they're so bitter sensitive. They would not even touch the Starbucks roast, for example, I think, o only if they add like syrup or milk. Any further questions? Yeah. In terms of your, your research, did you find in terms of temperature and time it's always actually dependent on the bean, on the roasting process, which roaster you're using. If it's a drum roaster or RFB, like fluidized bed roasting, that's one thing. And the other thing is if you're above 205, 210 degrees and you have a very long roasting time there, if you have a long development time there, like, I don't know, so I can't say it in general, like after three minutes you will pro produce phenylindanes. I just can't do that. But it, generally speaking, uh, if you are sticking too long above 205, 210, then you will generate those. But even worse, if you're going too fast above 220, like if you're like making your time short, but going above 220, you will have those harsh bitter tasting compounds. So I would rather stick within 205, 210, 215, but not too long. Like there's those roasts were like... I don't know, 20 minutes or so. Yeah. With that being said, with your time and temperature, did you also, and it sort of sounds like you did, did you play with your, your rate of rise? And That's an interesting thing. So, so I'm like super old-fashioned. I'm coming from Europe. This research was done in the years 2013 to 2017. 
and rate of rise wasn't a thing back then. And actually, I must be honest, it isn't a thing in academic science. I know it is a thing in specialty coffee, but for me, I think if you have temperature, if you have weight loss, if you have time, if you have color measurement, and if you have this analytical tools, you can pretty much do it the same way. But I know, like, previously I was working with Ikava Roasters, and I love their rate of rice because it's a powerful tool, and that's why I do not know why academic research is not supporting it more because... So from, from my per, per perspective, I love it. But um, if I would bring it up, they would be like, ah, let's stick to this old tradition ways of measuring. So I was using a probe drum roaster for this research, and I was measuring weight loss, um, humidity, color, those kind of things, the old-fashioned stuff. Please. An audience member is asking, what are the practical implications of discovering mozambioside aside from being a marker of Arabica coffee? Actually, no. None. It's basic research. Like, I think no one will ever need it. And um, as it is not, de- like, it is already in the green coffee bean. It is in the roasted coffee bean. It is pretty much not degraded. So it's not a roasting thing, which comes from the roasting process. But so it's just pretty much not changed during the roasting. It's just in the, in the bean. It's enhancing, enhancing the bitter taste. You can't change it. It's there. So accept it. That's the sad story behind it. I, was, I wanted to, to try to not talk about it because it sounds more fancy if I leave this out. A member of the audience is asking whether growing conditions affect the bitterness compounds in coffee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, there are so many varieties um, with so many different levels of chlororganic acid. So it's, when I said like 12%, up to 12%, it can be between 6 and 15%. And... It depends also on how those chlororganic, like chlororganic acids is like more like a group. It's like 25 different t- types and they all form different and different bitter tasting compounds. And so in the end, the more chlororganic acids you have, the more later on phenylindanes you're going to have. So, but I would never advocate for dropping down chlororganic acid because it's so important for a pleasant, rounded, bitter tasting coffee that I would rather go like for just like, just don't change it. It's good how it is. Any variations in terms of the water content of the bean? That's the best one. So when I was talking about radical mechanism, stuff like that, for a radical mechanism, this is taking place when the water content, water activity in the bean is low. So what you need for radical reactions is like low water content and high heat, which is occurring 210 degrees. So the bean is super dry, you have high temperature, radical mechanism is kicking in, like it starts. So being said with that, it's like the drier the bean is, the higher the temperature is, the more of those phenylindane compounds you will get, the harsher the coffee will taste like later on. So thanks. That was Dr. Sarah Markhart at the Specialty Coffee Expo in April of 2019. Remember to check out our show notes for a full transcript of this lecture and a link to coffeeexpo.org for more information about this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA Podcast Expo Lecture Series, brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by SAP Soft Engine Coffee One. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.